Well, tonight we get to start John 6, which uh, is a great passage. It's a great passage. Um, you'll know it well from, uh, it's in, actually in all four Gospels. So one thing that's unique, I, I've said this before as we've gone through the Gospel of John thus far. But one thing is that if you see a story that shows up in all four Gospels, you need to pay attention, right? You pay attention. Not that all the stories aren't valuable, they're all valuable, but you know if there's an event that shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a, a specific weight to it, a specific uh, value that all four evangelists thought was necessary to include this story. And that's the story we read tonight in the feeding of the 5,000. So John 6 is one story, it's one narrative, the entire chapter. And I, I thought, I struggled for a while about how I would split it up. And I decided I'm going to have basically three sermons on the story. Um, but one of the things I've noticed as you study John 6 is we kind of tend to segment it because we talk about the feeding of the, of the 5,000 is kind of one thing. We talk about One of the things I've noticed as you study John 6 is we kind of tend to segment it because we talk about the feeding of the, of the 5,000 is kind of one thing. We talk about the walking on the water as kind of a separate story, and we don't really see them in relation to each other as John lays out. And then we know the, the bread of life discourse, which is the big thing John 6 is known for. I am the bread of life. Uh, all three of those are related, and they're all focused on what is happening in the feeding of the 5,000. So uh, as we start John 6, the next, just realize the next three weeks are all very closely knit as a, as a story. Um, so John 6 opens like this. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So it opens with giving you kind of the setting. If you remember, when we went through John 5, Jesus was actually in Jerusalem for, the, for, the, uh, excuse me, for a feast of the Jews. It doesn't tell you what feast, but it says a feast of the Jews. And so there's a feast of the Jews, and he's in Jerusalem, and now he's back in Galilee. Okay, so there's this kind of back and forth throughout the gospel of where Jesus is at. And um, as, as we all kind of know, we, we saw even in John 4, is that everyone on the whole rejects him in Judea and in Galilee. And this story that starts out so hopeful and starts out looking so positive for Jesus, by the end of it, you see how clear his rejection is at the end of John 6. So what happens is Jesus is near Galilee again, and it says that he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And what the other side means is uh, basically the side that they were not used to being on, which is the east side. The west side is where you would find Capernaum and all the places that, you know, Nazareth is on the west side further in. Um, those are the places where Jesus really traversed in Galilee. And so they go across to the more desolate side which is um, on the east side you have uh, you know, a, a typical hotbed today that you might have heard of. Golan Heights is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is probably in that region. It's kind of a more wilderness, more uh, rocky area. And so Jesus goes out there, and it says that he's going out there with his disciples, right? He's going out there just with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him because they had seen the signs 
that he was performing on those who were sick. So they go to the east side of the lake, and, it, and it's clear from here that Jesus has continued to do miraculous works, ones that aren't even recorded in the Gospel of John, right? They're, they're examples, right? The healing of the lame man in, um, in John 5, the uh, healing of the nobleman's son in John 4. Those are examples that are representative, are representative of Jesus' healing. But he did a lot more than that, that we don't even have recorded for us. And so they have been, this crowd has seen Jesus at work. They've seen Jesus healing the sick and performing these miraculous signs. And so they're drawn to him, right? They're drawn to him because he has this power. He's this miracle worker. And so the large crowd followed him. And it says, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And then John throws in this little note. He says, now the Passover was near. The Passover was near, which gives us two interesting facts. One, the Passover looms large over this chapter. Okay, The fact that John mentions that, we should keep in our minds that the Passover looms over this passage because it is near. John mentions that. It's not an aside. It's not just a random comment. John's making a point. Hey, the Passover, keep that in your mind as you're reading this, the events of that time. But also, remember in John 2, in John 2, there was a Passover. There was a Passover when Jesus went to the temple and cleansed the temple, which means a year has passed. Since the events of John 2, a full year has passed, and now it's near Passover again, sometime in March or April is when Passover happens, right? So a full year has passed in Jesus' ministry from back where we were in John 2 all the way here to John 6 when a second Passover is mentioned. So Jesus sits down with his disciples, and it says the Passover was near, and in John 6, verse 5, therefore Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. So if this is your first time reading the gospel, you know something big is about to happen, right? Jesus has some intention. It's ambiguous. You don't know what, but Jesus knows. I'm going to do something. And he says this to test Philip. Philip, where are we going to get all the bread for these people? We, we, should, we need to feed them. Where can we find that bread? And if you know the background to this passage, remember I mentioned Passover as a background. The background for this passage uh, throughout all of chapter 6, more, more specifically is Exodus 16. So if you want to write down in your notes, it's Exodus 16. But really it's the entire passage from Exodus 12 all the way through 16. So because that is so formative for this passage, I thought I would just give you a recap of what happens in Exodus 12 to 16. And I might read just a, an excerpt from it. But um, it's very significant. Remember, Exodus is the story of the redemption of the people of Israel out of Egypt. So they're coming out of Egypt, right? And in Exodus 12 is the start of... It's the initiation of Passover. In Exodus 12, God is explaining what is going to happen in Passover. And so he says, this is what you need to do, right? You need to bring a lamb into your home. You need to slaughter it, put the blood on the doorpost. He explains the whole event in Exodus 12. 
It happens after he explains it. And then in 13 and 14, they're fleeing. They're fleeing from Pharaoh. And they flee from Pharaoh. And remember, Moses parts the Red Sea and they cross on dry ground. And when they get across to the other side and Pharaoh's armies come in and remember the the waters close on them and, and they're defeated. The armies are crushed. And then in Exodus 15, it's called the Song of Moses. They sing this great rejoicing song about how the Lord delivered them from the Egyptian army. And so it's called the Song of Moses and Miriam, she's dancing. It says Miriam the prophetess sang about rejoicing. And that's Exodus 15. And then when you get to 16, the first thing that happens after the Exodus, they grumble. They grumble about not having food to eat. They have this miraculous deliverance. And the very next chapter, Exodus 16, they say, would that the Lord would have let us die in Egypt. And instead, we're going to die out here in this desert with no food. And in Exodus 16, the Lord promises to give them manna, this bread that comes from heaven. And so in Exodus 16, this is interesting. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 16, verse 4, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Notice the connection. Jesus, it said he tested Philip. And here it says the Lord is going to test the Israelites, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Right? They're complaining about the Lord's lack of provision. And he provides. He provides that's the background to what's going on in John 6. And so, and when you get to uh, Jesus in John 6, right, he's testing Philip is what it says. That, that word should be a link to what's going on in Exodus, right? <clears throat> and then he says uh, this in John 6, excuse me. Where are we to buy bread so that th- these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to even receive a bite, <laughs> right? They, they estimate that's probably like eight months wages, 200 denarii. So even if we had almost a year's worth of wages, we couldn't feed everyone here even a bite of what is here, even a bite. And then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? And of course, we have the story ingrained in our souls as those who've grown up. If you've grown up as a Christian, you know this story, right? This lad has these five barley loaves and two fish, and we know the Lord is going to multiply it. Multiply it. One thing I thought I would mention, and and this always sticks out to me as I read the Gospel of John, and I've been thinking about this. It's a young boy who gets to be one of the heroes of this story. 
right? Remember that the outcast and and the the unknown and the the poor. See, barley was was the loaves of the poor. It wasn't as expensive as wheat, right? A good wheat loaf. The barley was the poor person's loaf. And so this poor young boy has this small meal, and yet he offers it up in generosity to the Lord. The outcast, the poor, the weak, they're heroes. They're heroes in Jesus' eyes. They get to be the heroes of faith like the Samaritan woman. They get to be the hero of this miracle and offering what he has to the Lord. Jesus honors those who are weak and poor. I think that's important to remember. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. So we know there's a lot more than 5,000 people. 5,000 men and women and children beside. Right, But there's at least 5,000 men. Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Okay, there's a second background passage. It's a fairly clear allusion to another miracle story. There's two multiplication miracles in the Old Testament, and they're done by two prophets closely related to one another. The first is Elijah, and Elijah, remember, he multiplies the widow's oil, right? He multiplies the widow's oil. The less known uh, multiplication story is by Elisha. Elisha has a multiplication story as well, and it's very closely tied to this passage as well. It goes like this. It's in 2 Kings 4. I'll just read to you the last part of it, but you'll see the connections if you listen. It says, Now a man came from Baal Shalashah and brought the man of God, which is Elisha, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. And the man of God's attendant said, What? Will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, Give them to the people that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Pretty clear, right? That sounds very similar, but it shows two things, right? One is the greatness of Jesus the prophet. In Elisha's story, it's a hundred men, right? This, this 20 loaves of barley, how are we going to feed a hundred men? This is five loaves of barley and 5,000. It shows just the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus as a prophet, as a prophet, what his miracles are like. It also shows the abundance of the Lord, Right, that left over, that this—it's a running over with the Lord. Right, it's not just enough that everyone would have a bite, or be satiated, but there's more beside in the way the Lord works. But I will say this: what I, I as I've studied, I wonder if the idea of Elisha, the idea of Elisha and his multiplication miracle, is partly what makes the people misunderstand Jesus. 
I gave you two backgrounds, the Elisha multiplication miracle and the Exodus. And in one, Jesus is held up as the prophet greater than Elisha, right? And the very next thing that people say, surely this is the prophet who was going to come into the world. Surely this is the prophet who is going to come in the world. They have Elisha in their background. They're thinking about that multiplication miracle. But what Jesus brings up in the bread of life discourse is Exodus 16. They misunderstand and think of Jesus as the prophet. Who provides the bread in Exodus 16? God does. God does. They see him as a prophet. Jesus says, no, I am the manna provider. I am the manna provider. I provide manna like my father. Like my father. Jesus is acting as God in this miracle. Providing manna to the Israelites in the wilderness up on the mountain. Up on the mountain in the wilderness, he's providing bread. So they, I'm not saying that their faith uh, wasn't real to recognize Jesus as the prophet, but it wasn't, they didn't understand far enough, right? They understood some level about him, but they didn't understand the depth of who he was. So they say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. They expect him to be this one like Moses, right? They're referring to Deuteronomy 18.18, when Moses says, another prophet will come up like me and you shall listen to him. And here's what's interesting. Verse 15. This is very uh, this is just a very interesting verse. It says Jesus in John 6:15. Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. One thing I had read in, in a commentary I was reading this week, which was really interesting, I'd never considered it before, is the idea of why this number of 5,000 men is mentioned. And one thing one commentator said is it kind of shows this idea of Jesus has already got an army ready to fight for him. If he wants to rebel, he's got 5,000 men behind him who are ready to fight, to die for him. Jesus could, could easily do that. And of course, you know, if you know anything about Jewish history, they were a rebellious people when they were under uh, the thumb of someone else, right? Judas Maccabeus in the Maccabean era, if you know that story. And of course, in 70 AD, they rebel and are crushed by Rome. The temples destroyed. Remember the story of Masada, right? Those last holdouts, Rome conquers. Jesus could have rebelled here. And they obviously wanted to make him king by force. Jesus understood that. And so he withdrew from them. He withdrew from them. And the lesson here, I think, is this. Isn't it interesting when we compare this with John 5? The Jews in, in Judea, in Jerusalem, the, leader, the leadership of the Jews, Jesus was not the Messiah they wanted. He did not fulfill their expectations, and so they reject him as Messiah. And here in John 6, 
they, they have a positive reaction to Jesus. They're like, hey, let's make him king right now. Let's make him king by force. We believe him. He, he must be the Messiah. He must be this prophet that was coming. And they still, even with a positive reception of Jesus, he was not the Messiah they wanted and expected, even with their positive reception of him. And so Jesus withdraws from them. That is a lesson. Jesus is not a Messiah of our own making. And whether you receive him positively or negatively, you have to accept Jesus where he stands and for what he has said he stands for. You can't make him king by force and receive him positively. You can't make him into a Messiah. You know, he's not the Messiah I wanted, so I'm going to reject him until he becomes the Messiah I want, the one that I expect. You have to accept Jesus right where he is, right where he says he is, right? Like in this example where he says, guess what? I'm the manna provider. And it's in that context that the walking on the water occurs. Jesus withdraws up the mountain to be alone. And he escapes the crowds by walking on water. They're intending to make him king by force. And so what does it say he does? His disciples go down and get in a boat in verse 16. In verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. So they're going back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, their home base really, right? Back to where they're used to being. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles out into the, into the lake, right? When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus reveals again who he is as God by walking on the water. Right? In the biblical uh, accounts, right, even in, in the Old Testament, the waters represent chaos and disorder and storms and all the, the unconquerableness of nature. And so God is always said, if you read Job, if you read the Psalms, he's said to be the one who stills the seas, who tells the waves how far they can go and they will not come any farther. He's told to be in control of this unconquerableness of nature. That is so overwhelming to humanity. And Jesus walks on the water, the storm walker, right? It's a stormy sea and he is out walking on it. That's clearly divine. That's divine for Jesus to be able to do that. But even more than that, John makes really clear by the language he uses for what Jesus says. Now, I'm not doubting that Jesus said this. This is definitely something Jesus said. But John makes it very clear in the words he chooses to use 
that this is showing Jesus' divinity. He uses two, two things. He says, it is I, it is I. And in Greek, that phrase is ego eimi, ego eimi, I am. Now, that's obviously a very loaded phrase, okay? It's also just the standard way in Greek to say, like, I am that person. Like, you know, if you call out to someone like, hey, I'm looking for this person, you could say, I am he, ego eimi, I am he. That's very standard, okay? So you can't inherently assume because you see that phrase that it's always about who God is, right? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But in the context of this passage, that is so obviously revealing the divinity of Jesus, I have no doubt it's loaded with that weight of the Old Testament, I am. And ego eimi in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, whenever Yahweh shows up, that name, the divine name, it is ego eimi, I am, I am. And so Jesus uses that phrase, I am. I think it is loaded with that weight in this passage. And it's confirmed to me by the second phrase. Do not be afraid. The most common command in the scriptures. The most common command in the scriptures. The number one thing God commands over and over and over again. Does anyone know what that is? Do not fear. Do not fear. He says it all the time when he appears to people. He says it to Abraham in Genesis 15. Do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield and your very great reward. He uses it over and over again. It's, it's used almost, not exclusively, it's used more than this, but it is used almost always in these appearance, these appearance narratives, right? That God is appearing to someone. Do not be afraid. He says, I am. Do not fear. Jesus is revealing who he is to the disciples. And then, of course, when they see that he is God, now they don't understand it yet, right? But I'm saying from the narrative perspective. They don't understand. They do not have a full understanding of who Jesus is until the Holy Spirit's poured out, right? They really don't grasp everything. And, and who are we to say everything, right? That is a, an, un, an unquenchable quest, right? It is something that forever we will explore the depths of who God is. But they don't have that full understanding of Jesus the Messiah until the Holy Spirit's poured out. But in the narrative... John makes it clear he is God, if you're reading this. And then he says, so the disciples were willing to receive him. They were willing to receive him because they believed in him. That's kind of a strange way to say that, isn't it? They were willing to receive him into the boat. He's, he's making a point about the condition of their hearts. They received him. They were willing to receive him. And so Jesus enters the boat. And then the little-known miracle that I think it only shows up in John, but we never really talk about it, then the boat like teleports to the other side of the lake. It says immediately they're just on the other side. I don't know what to say about that. It's interesting, though. It's an interesting end to that story. But again, obviously, that is not a human reality. That's a divine reality. In fact, they immediately they're at their destination. Jesus, in this passage, is revealing who he is, that he is God, that he is God. 
that's as far as we'll go in the passage tonight. We'll have two more weeks as we explore this. But from there, right at the outset of this narrative, John is explaining that Jesus is God. He explains it by saying he's the manna provider in the feeding of the 5,000. And he explains it by saying he's the storm walker. He's the one who walks on the seas. He is the I am. He's the one who commands, do not fear. Do not be afraid. John is revealing who Jesus is. Even as you read. Even though you may not understand, right? Maybe you're, you're a first-time Christian. You've never read the Gospel of John before. You don't have all the connections and associations. And yet, John is still revealing who he is. That Jesus is God in this passage. And I think I have two, two lessons I just want to end with. Two lessons, I think, as we think about what it means for humanity. And the first I, I already mentioned, but it's important. It's, it's about Jesus as Messiah. I was just so struck by the fact that you can have negative and positive responses to Jesus that are both equally messed up. That both are demanding Jesus to do something else. You can have a negative response and say, Jesus, till you become the Messiah I want, I want nothing to do with you. And you can have a response like, yeah, Jesus, he's the Messiah. Now be the Messiah the way I want you to. I'm going to go make you king. When obviously Jesus had a completely different plan, and his plan was obviously the opposite, right? The suffering Messiah, the dying Messiah. He looked nothing like the king they were expecting. And I was just so struck by that. We have to guard our hearts against that. How often do we come to Jesus to make him the Messiah we want him to be? i got to be honest. If you've never been troubled by something Jesus has told you, I think you got to have a question, right? you got to have a question in your heart. And do I know Jesus the Messiah the right way? There is a sense in which Jesus as Lord asks us to do hard things that we do not feel comfortable with that ask us to do things that we aren't prepared for, that tells us some hard truths when we look at ourselves, that's Jesus the Messiah. And man, if you're not convinced of that by the end of John 6, let me tell you, the bread of life discourse, eat my flesh, drink my blood, if you're not convinced of hard teaching from Jesus at the end of chapter 6, man, missed it. You've missed something significant. We have to respond to Jesus as he is. As he truly is. And the second lesson I think is this, and I was just reminded of this, of Jesus the Messiah as God in John 6, as we read this story. And I think, man, this is probably the most impertinent lesson of all the lessons we can go through. Do not fear. Do not fear. That... That command runs through Scripture from the Lord. That command runs through Scripture from the Lord. Do not be afraid. And you know, that doesn't mean that awful, terrible, horrible things aren't going to happen. That death itself may come to our door. Physical, bodily death. And yet, we're called not to fear. Because we know the Lord has conquered death. We know that Jesus himself conquered the grave. He conquered the grave. And so we who believe in him have nothing to fear from the power of death. 
from the power of Satan, from the power of the world, from the power of our own sin, of our own flesh that fight, wars against us, right? That it says. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be wise. It doesn't mean we shouldn't use all that God has offered us to um, fight in wisdom against those things. Of course we should. But we never surrender to fear. We never surrender to fear. Because fear is not from God. Fear is not from God. Right? It is not a spirit of fear He has given us. So we, I think, more than ever need to double down on that and remember that. And I, I don't know how that applies to your own life. I, I'm not going to be presumptuous enough to say that, yeah, apply, do not fear in this way. I don't get to make that call. Jesus the Messiah gets to make that call. And maybe it's something we don't like, right? Like I just said, maybe it is something we don't like. But that's, that's for you to discern with the Lord, not for me to tell you what that is. That's something for you to discern with the Lord. But I do know this, don't fear. Don't fear. The Lord commands us, do not be afraid. And we know we don't have to be afraid for He is with us. He walks among us and in us in His Spirit that is dwelling in us who believe in Jesus. Do not be afraid. Let me bless you as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you for each person in this room, each person online. I pray, Lord, that you would give them a spirit of strength, a spirit of strength and of power. The opposite of fear is power, Lord. And we know we have power in you, power to stand against death, to stand against fear. Take courage, men and women, like the Lord says to Joshua. Be, be strong and courageous. May each one of you be strong and courageous this next week in whatever way the Lord intends that for you. May you not give up to fear. And may the Lord remind you that He is Messiah, that He is the one who is Lord. And would you listen this week? Lord, help every person in here to hear from you. Help them to listen to you and discern what it is you would have, the hard teaching you have. And when true disciples come into contact with hard teaching, they press on, they persevere, they trust in you, and they follow it even when they don't know, even when they don't understand. They try to follow that, Lord. So may each person in here who believes in you be a true disciple. Be a true disciple and press on even through hard teaching. We love you. Bless each person. In Jesus' name. Amen.